Hey gang, welcome to The Lawyer's Daughter. This is a reboot of the podcast that I attempted to do almost two years ago now. I was doing the Jennifer Carroll podcast, but I realized it was really hard. It took a lot of work and the production was very time consuming. Plus there's this thing about listening to your own voice that I don't know how the podcasters deal with it. And this is a better format for me now because I don't have to listen to my own voice so much. But I'm going to try to do this as a radio format where I just simply come on and talk to you. And the reason I wanted to do it is that there's a lot happening now and it's happening faster than I can write. If you follow my blog, The Lawyer's Daughter, it's it's actually going down way too fast. I will still be writing when I need to think more and want to have a cogent piece on what's going on that requires some thought and discussion. But I also wanted to make sure that I could deliver news faster. So I thought this live podcast Radio Jen Carroll um, is the way to get this done. So here's what that means for you, the listener. I'm going to make mistakes. So you're just going to have to laugh at me when I do or bust up laughing if one of my cats decides to do something insane or however that ends up playing out. And I might be in some weird places when I do these because I've required this requires a lot of mobility to be able to go up to Sacramento and back. Um, almost at a moment's notice, sometimes with planning, but other times things are happening that I just want to get up there for. So as most of you know, I live down in Santa Cruz and then I have a place in Sacramento where my daughter lives and I camp out. So, and it's been perfect. It's actually been working out really well. Uh, Just enough space between us and yet nice ways to come together. So the way this is going to work, if you look at, I've kept the legacy episodes because there was something, um, wonderful about them at the time. And those are now listed as legacy episodes. So if you listen to old stuff, you'll see those and they're in date order. These will always be in date order. Today, actually, I should start off with the date. Today is March 5th. It is March 5th. It's a Thursday. And wow, it has been one hell of a week. But I'll get to that in just a minute. I just want you to know that I'm going to have probably three different kinds of episodes. Um, A now, a then, and an in the news. So the now are the things that are contemporary, breaking news, information I'm hearing that I can share. Sometimes I can't, but most of the time I can. Information I can share with you about um, what's going on since the arrest. And I'm going to actually try to do some interviews. I'm heading down to Ventura at the end of the month, and I'm hoping I can get some interviews done as well with some... um, cool people who've been part of my life or have been part of the case. So let's fingers crossed on that one. Then I'm going to have another kind of episode, which I call the then. These are very, very uh, sophisticated names. But the then episodes are based on the memories and the old stuff. And from the moment the murders happened to the present, I haven't actually recorded that much about what happened back then. And now that I'm giving these talks, Um, It's really made me go back and look at the history and the artifacts, and I've managed to uncover some photographs. Shout out to HBO for making me keep digging in our family. Actually, there's four different houses that I had to push everybody to dig through to find the the pictures, but it, my dad took a lot of slides. It, that was kind of his hobby to be a photographer. And so it turns out my brother Jay had these slides, which was, it's been pure gold. And I haven't um, digitized many of them. In fact, HBO is who digitized the ones that I have so far. So again, shout out to them for that, because that was a that was a heavy lift and they got that done and I reaped the rewards. So that's the then kind of podcast. And then uh, finally, I'll have 
something that I call in the news. And that's not necessarily what it sounds like. I have something called a murder book. It Imagine an 18-year-old saying, I got to keep all this stuff. So I started, um, it's a very old-fashioned photo album, and everything about it is yellowed and old. But I started putting the articles that were coming out, especially from the Ventura Star Free Press, because back in the day, you had the local paper, and that's where you basically got your news. Unless it was a Sunday edition of the Los Angeles Times, You most of us relied on local papers. So the Starfree Press did a lot of the reporting. And I'll just give you one example of um, why it's so important. So I typically will read the article out loud, but I'll also uh, comment on it. Snarky, um, curious, all kinds of things that I'll notice about it. Because now that we know what's real, it's really interesting to look at what was reported then. But here's an example of something that I just figured out when I was putting together this talk is that we didn't really understand that Charlene was raped until 1982. Now, when I say we, I mean we, like me and mom and Jay and Gary and the people that didn't have access to the the files or the research or anything like that. Nobody had particularly told us, but it came out in the preliminary trial for Joseph Alsip. And when I was looking at the headlines, I realized, oh my God, the headline even says, I think, um, Mrs. Smith or, or the wife may have been raped. It's in that uh, journalistic style where they don't have a whole lot of room to write a full sentence as the headline. But I thought, wow, first of all, how did they not know? Because I know Dr. Speth, who was the uh, the coroner, forensic investigator on site, um, coroner investigator. I'm not sure they had millions of titles back then. I'll get his real title. Don't worry. But Dr. Speth was he's the one that took the two samples of DNA from Charlene's body. And one of those samples sat in cold storage for 40 years. And so, and that was the sample that was used to compare to D'Angelo. So it's interesting to me that Dr. Speth knew she had been raped that day, that day they found them. That was a Sunday. In fact, um, one of the anecdotes here is that we don't even exactly know what day they died. I think everybody's now just sitting with it probably was Friday night, but they weren't discovered until Sunday. But there were still a lot of questions. There have always been a lot of questions. When exactly was he in the house? Anyway, Dr. Speth knew that she had been raped. So then I go, well, then why was I a suspect? I mean, seriously, that was pretty traumatic, even though I managed up a lot of bravado about that. Um, it was traumatic and it still bothers me to this day that they thought that, you know, I could have killed my dad and Charlene. So looking at the in the news um, articles and talking about them now with all of our 2020 hindsight is a little bit interesting and it reveals essentially how this uh, how investigations go and what the process is like and what kind of information is shared and what kind of information is held back. So I'll have those as specials along the way just because they're a little bit fun and, and for it's all the people up there who like to do the his, forensic historic analysis um, that'll appeal to you I'm sure. My plan is to do these podcasts as often as I can with the real emphasis of keeping you up to speed on what's happening. I realize I cannot even write blogs as fast as news is breaking now, and it it's nuanced. We had a big bunch of news break this week, and I'm still reeling from some of it. So here we go. We're, we're up and running, and I'm back. We're going to start. I'm going to start 
today with just talking about the news that's broken this week. There's a lot I still need to catch you up on, but let's just start with this notion of a plea that's been breaking this week. It was Tuesday when I was preparing to do my first talk in Santa Cruz, and it was around four o'clock, and I saw a post, a notification come through on my phone from Reddit that said, JJD is going to plea, and I stopped breathing. I, you can hear that in my breath as I just drew it in. I didn't, you know, folks, folks ask, um, how did it feel? Well, it actually felt like all the feelings. I think uh, physiologically, my body flooded with adrenaline. I felt cold and hot. I felt completely confused. It was almost like I got punched and I, and I was really mad that it happened at that moment because I was already working on working up to do this talk for the first time. So I was already putting a lot of energy into preparing and then to get this this thing to come across Reddit. So I immediately started investigating. I, I know I called my mom. She's such a good um, person for me to call. And she's like, well, we need to find out more. And I'm like, yeah, we do. And I'm really messed up. And she's good about staying in the present with me and just helping me calm down and refocus. Then I started looking a little more and found out it was something that Paige St. John had found in a footnote on a motion that was filed by the defense. And apparently this motion is maybe 200 pages long. So I will owe you more detail on that soon, but that will be an upcoming podcast here in the next couple of days because I need to get into that and see what the motion's about. I absolutely understand the whole motion, but I suspect it's the motion that's trying to get some charges dropped and trying to, I call it six for Kate, because bifurcate certainly not the right word, but six for Kate, these cases, meaning that right now we're looking at cases from six different jurisdictions that are ready to be tried. The the reality, I call this the big gulp. The prosecution, um, I think at least two years ago, it was very early in this that uh, they decided that they wanted to do this as one giant big gulp and do all the cases at once. And so those are all what's planned to be uh, adjudicated in Sacramento County. Now, here's there's a couple of reasons why this is really important. First of all, it makes it really big. So as you can imagine, we're going into a trial that's got all this stuff happening from all these jurisdictions. So that's a big deal. It also makes it expensive. And one of the things that the defense has asked for and some of the motions that we're getting ready for for next week, we have another hearing on the 12th in Sacramento. But one of the reasons we're um, gearing up for that is that they have asked for to separate these cases out. And they, oh, I'm sorry, they've also asked for money from the different jurisdictions. Now, take a minute and realize what we've done here. We we all in America, we believe in law and order. We believe in justice. And our tax dollars are used to support that legal system. And ironically enough, our tax dollars are paying for D'Angelo's defense. That is how we fund the public defender's office. It comes from the budget that comes out of Sacramento County. So I don't think it's unreasonable for them to ask for money and or other resources from the different jurisdictions because that really should be a shared financial responsibility when it comes to defending D'Angelo. That shouldn't that burden shouldn't fall wholly on Sacramento County. But they're also so that's one of the motions. They are also asking to to dismiss some cases. And again, I'll get into this in detail in an, in an upcoming podcast. I just need to do a little bit of research to make sure I have it all right. But they are asking that this then be sixfurcated and um, 
that the different that the trials, if there are additional trials, they happen in their own jurisdictions. So that's important, and that's a, something that will be ruled on. the The question I have is, why did they wait till now? The prosecution made this clear that this is how we were proceeding at least 18 months ago. It seems odd. I feel like this defense team just woke up since the January hearing. And I unfortunately missed that hearing because I had norovirus, which I do not want anybody to get because it was the god awful. But they have, it's like they woke up. Once the judge said, no, we're not getting a continuance till next January. No, um, we're not going to sit around and wait for you to go through all that discovery. You, you, we're on year two now. Let's get it together here. Let's prioritize. He didn't say all that. I'm adding my value. Um, but he, the idea is we got to move forward. That's the point. And I wish I could have been there for that cheering when he said that. But the, then he set the date for May 14th. And that's um, just eight, about eight weeks out now. With that, things started to happen. So uh, what you don't know, what nobody reports on, but there was a lot of increased anxiety among the people who are now going to have to testify. They knew it conceptually. It was coming up as soon as they were. This is especially true among the people who are being asked to testify relative to the kidnapping charges. Those are the rape charges, and they're not the murder charges. Um, so in, in the rape charges where there was where a person was moved or there was some sort of act that was considered kidnapping, those became charges that could still be applied, and they also helped with special circumstances, which led to the death penalty request. Those folks are having a lot of anxiety. I honestly... Even in our case, where my brother, who was 12 at the time when he found my dad and Charlene, he's going to have to testify, and he's not particularly thrilled about it either. I mean, this is, if he could get out of it, he probably would. Um, but he also understands the importance of doing it, and he's he's down to testify if that's what it's going to take. So I don't want to in any way th- indicate that he doesn't want to do it, but he will do it. It's just not the first thing on his list. So as you can imagine, those folks who are scheduled to testify are starting to get anxious. And um, and that's hard. That's hard. And, and we are, I guess we're unique in that the survivors or victims, and I'm going to use both words interchangeably, I guess we're kind of unique because we uh, became a squad. Not everybody has squatted with us. Some folks have remained anonymous and haven't um, joined us, which I'm sorry they haven't because they're really missing one of the most healing pieces of this whole thing. But but for those of us that do get together, we're working hard to support one another as people's anxiety starts to, to, starts to rise. So that's been tough. Um, the other thing that's really weird that's happened is that we have been a squad all this time because it has been about the bad guy who hurt us. Now there's really two groups of victims. There are there's those that have cases that cannot be tried. So all of the rapes that don't um, that have have had the statute of limitations has rendered them um, untriable for that reason. With the exception of the kidnapping charges, those rapes are those folks that have those rapes are not part of the active group now who are the victims who have charges that can be applied, which is why suddenly there's this odd shift to um, more emphasis on the murders from Southern California. If you think about it, at least um, I grew up 
thinking the murder first was a murder in a small town. And then when I heard about the other murders in Southern California, I considered myself part of that group, absolutely, as those as we were all connected through DNA. And then when it became part of Sacramento, at least for me, because I've always had family in Sacramento and I went to UC Davis and I went to Sac State, I instantly identified with the people in Sacramento. Like those are my people, right? I've I've spent so much time, so much of my life has been spent in Sacramento. It just felt like, it's always felt like a second home to me. I, I joke that I have three homes now because it's Ventura, Sacramento, and, and Santa Cruz. So I always identified with the Sacramento folks. And when we came together, we were all one. But now there's a, this slightly different dynamic going on. And I don't think it's particularly playing out in terms of our relationships. But some of us, including me, feel like we really are representing those that don't get to have a voice in this right now, which are those that don't have active charges. So these are the things nobody talks about, but it really is interesting how the legal system has an impact even on relationships, even on your ability to be a victim and how that works. And that's absolutely in play. We also have the defense um, looking, so they're looking to release the charge. They want to drop the, dismiss the charges from the different jurisdictions. But let me, sorry, do the pivot. The prosecution is looking to get more DNA. Again, I don't know how it is that we arrive here in March of 2020 and we don't have enough of J. JD's DNA, but apparently that's the case. In fact, Ventura is one of the jurisdictions asking for more. Um, they have one of the motions in to get more DNA. Maybe it's a safety thing. I don't know. I sometimes ask my prosecutor not to tell me things so that I don't let the cat out of the bag, but that'll be something that is um, adjudicated on at the hearing on the 11th from everything I get. I mean, on the 12th, I'm sorry, next week, based on everything I've read and understand on what's going on and what's going to happen on the 12th. And in my next podcast, I really will go through um, a letter that the victim services had put out to us that explains what's going to happen and then and then a little deeper dive into how that works. I also am going to do another podcast on how this how a plea works because we have something in California called Marcy's Law and I need to read that again so I can uh, be articulate when I talk about it but I want to bring you up to speed on that because that absolutely affects how this plea stuff goes. So let's go back to the breaking news on Tuesday when I heard there that he had intended to plea. So that was found in a footnote by Paige St. John from the LA Times, the, an, a motion, a 200-page motion that was filed, I believe, on the 2nd. Um, and and, and that, that confounds the hell out of me, I've got to say. I have um, many feelings, but let me just take the straight law and order uh, questions I have first. First of all, why was that put in writing? Because the minute you write down that someone is willing to plea, you taint, taint any prospective jury pool because you've essentially said your client's willing to plead guilty. I don't know what to plead guilty to what. That is not, I don't know if that's in the bigger um, motion. So when I go through that, I'll come back with that information. And right now, all I know is what you know probably, which is in, in that plea, that this is, that he is willing to plea. So there's many opinions about that on what crimes he should plead to. Um, does that include the rapes that aren't part of this case? Is it only for these charges that are currently in existence? Uh, I'm not sure, but that's that's what I've got to go back and examine the motion. The other thing is that 
is it if you're tainting the if you're already admitting well, you're tainting the jury pool. How do we possibly move forward at this point? I mean, this is really screwed up if you think about it. And I'm I'm not understanding why they what the tactic is that they put it in writing. But I wonder about um, legal malpractice. I wonder about other questions that are being covered that could could reveal what's really going on here. I've I. I cannot think of a case, and I'd love um, folks to let me know if they have any examples of where that kind of information was leaked publicly. So I'm going to switch to my emotional reaction, which is really pissed, <laughs> because what's happened now, and this is so classic of this set of crimes, right? It's so classic that, once again, D'Angelo is controlling the narrative, and that really pisses me off. I am so tired of this man who lived his full 72 years out in the wild doing all these awful things, but also having his nice little middle age and early senior years undetected, without any constraints, without any rules, living in Citrus Heights, doing his thing, fishing, riding his motorcycle, being a jerk. Um, he's been out there and now he gets to control the narrative when it comes to how we're going to find him guilty. No, I'm hot about this. I don't want any part of this. I want, at a minimum, I feel like a plea is too soon. And I feel, at a minimum, we should have this prelim that's coming up in May. And here's why. No matter what, there are still people who aren't sure he's the guy. That's actually, if you think in principle, that's how it's supposed to work, right? Guilty until, I mean, (laughs) there I go. Oh, my God. Innocent until proven guilty. You have the right to to stand there and be accused, but to fight those accusations. And, the, and, the, and it's the responsibility of the prosecution to prove that this man is guilty. So, okay, let's go at least as far. So that's why some people are, I'm, I'm sure, are like, well, maybe we, he didn't do it. Maybe we have the wrong guy. Okay, I don't agree because of DNA, but I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. Then let's go ahead and move into the prelim. And there's another very big reason why that's important. D'Angelo didn't just hurt humans and families, but he terrorized whole communities. And I really feel a civic responsibility is owed by him to sit in a courtroom for at least eight to 12 weeks, even if it's just this mini prelim, and listen to the charges that will that support, listen to all the evidence that support holding him over to trial. That is the point of the prelim, is to show there is enough evidence to bind him over to trial. After we all hear that, and we've had a chance to hear what kind of evidence we have, and I know, I, I know there's evidence beyond DNA, then he can make a plea, and, and that can work through the plea process. But let's go ahead and move with this prelim. I think it's owed to far more than just the victims. It is owed to all of us who lived in fear. I lived in fear for decades. I didn't even know I had a serial killer that I was afraid of for the first 20 years. I thought there was just a crazy person who hated my dad and Charlene. Now I find out, you know, it, at, in about 2000, I find out, no, 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 there's a serial killer on, a lo- on the loose. And that coincided to exactly when I'd had Katie. She was born in 1999. And suddenly I felt more vulnerable than I've ever felt in my life because now there was a bad guy out there and I didn't have any idea what his MO would be. But I did know, based on the information from Sacramento, that he would revisit the crimes in terms of calling people that he had hurt before. And in my case, 
He didn't have my dad and Charlene to call. He only had the kids. So I did feel vulnerable and I did feel afraid and I did wacky things like bells on doors and having a bat by my bed and knowing how to use a perfume bottle as a thing you could spray in somebody's eyes so you could at least get a few minutes. I mean, these are the things we do to protect ourselves. So it's really important to me that he have to sit in court for at least the prelim. And and I'd love to hear what other people think about that, but that's that's my that's my position right now. I'm a little I know that's a little bit of a hard position to take because some of my friend who are now my friends, some of the survivors don't want to testify. And I really feel for them because I understand how scary that is. I don't have to testify. And of course, as we know what happens with rape victims, they're put on the stand and suddenly they're cross-examined as t- in terms of what's their role in this. What what did they do to bring it on? And just the notion of that, that it brings back those sense memories from when they went through this rape to begin with them were questioned. I don't, I really don't look forward to them having to be put through that again. So I have a lot of compassion for that fear and that, um, that anxiety about testifying in May, sometime this summer. So I, you know, I, but I, I just, I still can't get over the fact that I really think he owes all of us um, showing up and hearing hearing the evidence that we have against him, hearing the stuff that will bind him over to trial. So when it comes to a plea, there's something in California called Marcy's Law. I'm going to read that, bring it back to the podcast and talk to you about that. But there are a lot of steps that have to happen before we get to an actual plea bargain. And that's why the news this week, I think, was so stunning. And it and I'm really so irritated that the defense is driving the narrative now because now they're able to convince a lot of people because people are talking about it in this way. Can't we just get it done? Why are we spending the money on this asshat? We need to just shut him down. If he's going to plea, that's great. But it's not that cut and dried. There's a lot of gray between that black and white. And we need time to look at that gray and, and really be clear about what what we, we the people, we the victims want to get from him and what he should be pleading to. And I know a lot of folks that said, then doesn't he have to allocate and explain what it is that he did when he stands before the judge? And I believe technically that is true, but I have been, let's put it this way, I have had my expectations set that he is not inclined to share a lot of information with us. He is not inclined in any way to help us feel better about what's happened He's not inclined in any way to make this any easier on anybody but himself. And if we move forward with a plea without him having to ever walk into a real courtroom, not one in the county jail, where he stands in a cage and looks like, you know, he's frail when in fact he's just thin. Um, if we don't, if we don't get any further than that in my opinion, he wins. And once again, he's controlling the narrative and he's controlling the outcome. And I'm so over that. So um, one of the things that, so where we are. So one of the things that's happened that came out in the news in the last two days, I think, is that it is true that I believe it's only the people that have charges pending got letters from the defense. It's um, it's not a great letter. I mean, it, it just, I'll share it. I'm trying to hold on to it until May 12th, and then I will be sharing it on the blog so you can take a look at it. But the gist of the letter is essentially, we're looking for alternatives to a trial. Now, they've leaked it. They've managed to capture the narrative by adding their footnotes. They've just moved ahead. I guess we didn't satisfy them with our lack of response. But I, as a, as a rhetoric major, 
Google it. Um, I'm very interested in the language they used, and I would very much like to talk to them about that and understand why what they have what they mean with the letter and that's one of the reasons I'm holding back a little bit about discussing it because I'm hoping to meet with them to understand more about what they're looking for and what they hope to accomplish it seems unusual to me I mean it certainly was unusual to get an envelope in the mail from the public defender of Sacramento and then to open it up and see a letter from them and what they are trying to invoke is a third-party consultant and I guess these are kind of typical in capital cases. Because, <laughs> you know, we all know how what's typical in capital cases. Haven't we all lived through a death penalty case? Yeah, no. Apparently, there are these um, folks who work, who work for the defense. They are consultants, so they're third parties, but they work to get victims to come around and not be pro-death penalty. Well, of course, why would they want to talk to me? I've already said I'm not pro-death penalty. I don't want to do anything. Well, first of all, in California, we aren't going to execute him anyway. So him offering to plea in exchange for not getting the death penalty to me is just a laugh out loud, bwahaha joke because he's not going to be executed. But I'm not sure he deserves a room on death row. I don't know the conditions there. I don't know how they compare to gen pop, the general population, but I'm going to guess it's probably better than being in the general population, especially at age 74. I'm not down for that. Um, I've never been down for that. So I suspect the people they're really targeting in this letter are those people that they feel that they need to influence with regard to the death penalty. Now, if we go back and you look at some of my blogs, and I think this was uh, maybe May of last year, May of 2019, when the death penalty was asked for and we didn't know about it. And then we came out of the courtroom to find Mr. Harrington from Orange County. His um, brother and sister-in-law were murdered. Mr. Harrington um, basically having a outside the courtroom press conference saying he strongly supported the death penalty. And then that night there was a district attorney fundraiser on the back of the Golden State Killer case. And then the next day, a, I'll call it conservative um, press conference, again, about the death penalty. Essentially, they were, um, the, the, the tactic was essentially to push back on Gavin Newsom, as you might imagine. I mean, politics are part of this. Let's, I know, I know I have some folks out there that hate that politics is part of this, but it absolutely is. And you can decide, I, I don't care which side you're on. That's up to you and how you think and how you rationalize this for yourself. But it's interesting that it's in play here as something that is political because it, I think it will also influence how these district attorneys decide about a plea, whether we go to trial or whether they, if they're even willing to accept a plea. Again, remember, they are the deciders. When it all comes down to it, the district attorneys are the ones who will make this decision about a plea ultimately. So I'll get into that in detail as I get into Marcy's Law and really explain how it works here and what what variables they have to consider, how what the role of the victims are. I know if there's a plea, there's like there are these impact um reports you can stand up and give. I don't, I need to go get clear about that so I can discuss it with you in an intelligent way. But uh, it's really important to me. So I'm going to go um, read up on that. And then I'll be back with that information. But I did wanted to confirm, I did want to confirm that we got these letters, and I am actually trying to learn more about them, and learn more about what they are proposing. The big takeaway I got is that, unfortunately, they wrote it that they were trying, as I read it, let's see, let's put it this way. The way I understood what they wrote, it looked they were like they were trying to come out with a solution that would work for everyone. 
And of course, I immediately found that incredibly provocative because there's no way I want a solution that works for D'Angelo. I'm like, I'm feeling pretty contrary about that right now. And I suspect I'm not the only one. This needs to be a solution that works for us and the people, but I could give two craps if it works for D'Angelo. So that's where we are as we're heading in. I'm going to go get the deeper information. There's a lot happening with um, reporting. Of course, the the media has picked up this story like wildfire, and I've been asked for interviews. And um, and the best one is the one I just did with Oxygen because she really was able to grasp my feelings on the whole situation. It's the one that refers to D'Angelo's skinny ass. Um, I know, I know. Stop it, Jen. I have the opposite of a skinny ass, but that's okay. I just, he can have his skinny ass sit in court is how I feel about this. So until the next podcast, thank you for listening. And I will be back with you probably not tomorrow, but on Saturday, March 7th, I should have another update for you.